text today is from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. Hear now the word of God. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which, when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places, according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Therefore, I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. This is the word of God, and all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Today is Epiphany Sunday, of course. <clears throat> and so liturgically, our sermon text illuminates the church's celebration of the Epiphany event, the manifestation of Christ to the Gentiles, to the nations. This text we just read confirms Paul's vocation to bring the gospel to non-Jews and affirms that the Gentiles have become fellow heirs, members of the same body, and sharers in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Further, Paul exults in the reality that through the church the wisdom of God in its rich variety, might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Did you catch it? How is that going to happen? It's through the church. And so our attention today is focused upon Jesus' earthly beginnings, but quickly turns to the expanding significance of the Christ event through the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Today's lectionary reading from Matthew's Gospel stresses the importance of the visit of the Magi in the story of Jesus' birth. The text points to what was becoming apparent. The sphere of Jesus' influence included Israel, of course, but it was expanding beyond Israel as persons from the east come and pay homage to Jesus. Mark's gospel points to another beginning in Jesus' life, Mark 1 unfolds the scene of John baptizing Jesus in the Jordan River. Mark 1, 9 through 11. It is the inaugural event in Jesus' ministry. In both cases, in Matthew with the Magi visiting, in Mark and Jesus' baptism, in both cases, we hear the voice of the prophet Isaiah in the background. Arise, shine, for your light has come. 
Isaiah 60. The season of Epiphany begins with these ancient words coming alive in our speech, in our hearing, in our action. Epiphany marks an expansive pattern of God's self-disclosure, not only to God's people, but also, as Paul tells us, to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. In each incidence, the faithful depict it as, some, as, as the coming of light in darkness. According to the reading from Isaiah, the exiles released from the dark days of captivity are greeted by God's light upon their return home. This is a startling declaration to those returning from exile in Babylon. They left the darkness of captivity, however, only to return to the darkness of chaos and destruction in their homeland. When they lift their eyes and look around, Isaiah 60 tells us, they see anything but the glory of the Lord that has been promised. Jerusalem has become a city in shambles in their absence due to years of misrule by those left to fend for themselves and go their own way. The residents have created a culture of political and religious corruption and exist within a climate of devastation. The light of God's blessing shining on the exile's homecoming not only greets them, but illumines their mission moving forward. They are to rebuild what has been torn down. They are to replant. And they are to renew their faith in God. And so what the prophet offers as inspiration for the task is a vision of nations coming to the light that they will receive. And so Paul deals with the mystery of this message, the mystery of the gospel of Christ now made known. The passage from Ephesians marks yet another building project in God's plan, namely the construction not of a real physical temple, but of a community in which true Jews and Gentiles worship God together as one body. The presence of the Gentiles represents many nations that have come to the light of Israel by means of Jesus Christ. Whereas Isaiah was looking into the future to inspire Israel's endeavors to rebuild, Paul looks back to what he says in the first chapter of Ephesians. He looks back to the foundation of the world when God's plan for the construction of an inclusive human community took shape. Ephesians 1, 3 and 4 says, Blessed be God and, and Father, uh, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him when before the foundation of the world. Paul's looking back to that time. God's plan that had come to be made known in Jesus Christ was something uh, that happened before the beginning. Something in the mind of God before the beginning of the world. It would be a community. This is the essence of the mystery. This would be a community that would be holy and blameless before him in love, Paul tells us in chapter 1. It is this divine project that Ephesians celebrates as the letter begins. As God's plan unfolds, this mystery Paul talks about is disclosed that in the fullness of time, God will gather up all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. Now, the word mystery, uh, a word in our language which conjures up um, names like Agatha Christie or 
Dorothy Sayers, right, and their detectives, and Inspector Poirot or Miss Marple or Lord Peter Whimsey, um, these are certainly accurate associations in the way we use the term in English, but they're sort of misleading, I think, in regard to what is meant by Paul here when he, talk, when he call, calls the, the gospel of Christ a mystery. In the New Testament, the Greek word mysterion means something which is beyond natural knowledge, something you could not have come to yourself, either by empirical discovery or by logical reasoning. It's beyond that. It's superhuman. But that has been opened up to us only by divine revelation, through the intention of the Holy Spirit's ministry. That's what the mystery is. Paul's words in Colossians 1.26 give us the idea. He says, The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints. That's the mystery. It is something previously undreamed of, which is now disclosed to believers. In other words, it's now an open secret. The gospel of Christ, Paul says, is now an open secret. The time has come. And this is very exciting for Paul. It's invigorating for him. How could it not be? So here in Ephesians, the mystery was hinted at in chapter 2, verse 10, where Paul says, For we are God's workmanship. You know the famous passage. The, The Greek term here is poema. Isn't that fascinating? Our word poetry or poem comes from this Greek word. We are God's poetry. We are his work of art. The church is God's artistic creation, his masterpiece, a new spiritual creation. That's you. Is that how you see yourself? Is that how we see ourselves collectively? We're God's poem to the world. Read us and know Christ. We have been brought near through the blood of Christ to become this wonderful workmanship of God. The mystery was further opened in chapter 2, verse 15, where we are told that the nearness or this reconciliation that happens has happened through the creation of a new humanity, a third race of humans, so to speak, the church. We're the third race. And so amazing is the life of this new humanity that Paul uses three gripping images to describe its life in verses 19 through 22 of chapter 2. And then we we get this bouquet of images, so to speak, that further opens to us the mystery that Paul is talking about. Hear, Hear the words of Paul. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also being built together for a dwelling, dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Beautiful. Beautiful bouquet of images of what the church is and what Christ has done to create it. And so this mystery, this mystery of Christ manifest in the creation of the church is a now open secret and it dominates Paul's thoughts at the beginning of chapter 3 where we read in our text. And so in verse 1 he begins to pray, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles... But then 
he stops because he's still caught up with thoughts about this mystery that he was talking about in chapter 2. And he has to go on this digression. He, Paul often does this, right? Paul sort of gets excited about something and he goes on this digression and then has to bring himself back to the main point. So he digresses on the mystery in verses 2 through 13 and then begins to pray again in verse 14. For this reason I kneel before the Father. Paul has trouble leaving the marvelous subject of the mystery of the gospel. But this is the compulsion of a grateful heart. Paul is so grateful for what God has done. What a privilege he has to speak this mystery to the nations. And so we should note well that our passage is tightly connected to the universalizing motifs of the prophetic traditions in the First Testament and the Gospel's teaching in the New Testament, which clarifies and unfolds what this means for the church's ministry today. This is not something, quote-unquote, new. God's been doing this all along, but in this new dispensation of Christ being revealed to the nations, it has implications for the ministry of the church. What is our service to the world because of this mystery? And that's the question Paul's going to answer for us today. And I think this dovetails very well with what Pastor Booth was teaching on in Sunday school today. And I'm excited about that. So the imagery in Isaiah brings God's vision for humanity down to earth for us. And so to encourage the efforts of the exiles as Isaiah's audience, to encourage their efforts in their mission of rebuilding, Isaiah employs the familiar imagery of domestic life. The prophet declares that in Isaiah 60 verse 4, that their sons shall come from far away, a homecoming, and their daughters being carried on their nurses' arms. And Ephesians echoes Isaiah with its language of adoption. Those who were far off have been brought near. We have been adopted as sons incorporated into the family of God through Christ who has broken down the dividing wall, Paul says in chapter 2 of Ephesians. Broken down the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. And so the picture Paul draws here is one of this expanding family, this growing household. Indeed, it is, it is of a whole structure joined together, Paul says, into a holy temple in the Lord. The prophet Micah speaks to this idea as well. After a scorching critique of the wicked rulers and prophets of the kingdom of Judah, who through unjust economic and political policies, Micah says, tear the skin off God's people, Micah offers a universal vision of peace with justice as its heartbeat. He says, God shall arbitrate between strong nations far away. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Micah 4, 3 and 4. In similar fashion, Isaiah, speaking to people suffering through the Babylonian exile, offers the Lord's word of, of hope in his own way. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I have taken you by the hand and I have kept you. I have given you as a covenant to the people, a light to the nations, to open the eyes that are blind. Do you see how this connects with what Paul is teaching in Ephesians 3? In the transition from 
the book of Luke to the book of Acts, which is really like volume one, volume two. Luke is a, a two-part uh, project there. In that transition, Luke picks up on this universalizing theme as well. He says, but you, at the beginning of Acts, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, Acts 1.8. So what does it mean in our day for members of Christ's body, the ecclesia, the called out ones, to experience the power of the Spirit and to witness to the ends of the earth. Paul answers this for us in the second half of the text for today in 7 through 13. And so having held the mystery of the church high for all to see, Paul goes on in verse 7 and 8 to exult in the ministry of the mystery, which is ours. It was his and he's passing it on to the church and saying, this is the ministry we have He says, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given to me. Now, this is this is funny a little bit to me. Paul, Paul does this several times. He bend he has to bend the Greek language to get his point across the we don't even have the linguistic capacity to talk about the category of the gospel. Language itself can't even express the mystery. So Paul has to play with the language. Isn't that wonderful? So uh, Paul has to bend the Greek language here to get his point across. He takes the Greek word for a least, right? Least is like the extreme end of the spectrum between greatest and least. What's beyond least? Well, least is least. If there's anything leaster than least, that's the leastest, least thing, right? <laughs> but think about what Paul does here. He bends the Greek language. He takes the Greek word for least or smallest. And then he adds an ending, which is actually impossible grammatically and linguistically, so that he comes out with the word leaster. And so some think he was really playing off his Latin name, Paulus, which means little or small. And so the idea is, I am little by name, little in stature, and morally and spiritually littler than the least of all Christians. I am small Paul. I am leaster than the least. That's the idea he's communicating. And Paul to Timothy said, Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worstest. 1 Timothy 1.15 To the Corinthians, he wrote, for I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was in me. First Corinthians 15, 9 and 10. This is a uh, universal theme for Paul. He understood what he had been given. Do we? Do we understand what we've been given in the mystery of the gospel? Paul's reminding us of that today. He knew what he was, but he also understood God's grace. Paul simply could not get over 
the immense privilege he had of ministering for God. Paul indicates in our text three ends, three goals to his project of preaching this ministry. First, Paul exulted in his responsibility to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Verse 8. The great Italian conductor Tuscanini once gave a concert of a Beethoven symphony for which um, the audience uh, was wildly enthusiastic. And many of his concerts were like that. He was a, an amazing conductor. But there were several encores, and even still the audience continued to cheer and cheer and cheer. And finally, when there was a lull in the roaring cheer, and Tuscanini turned his back to the audience, and he said to the orchestra so that they could hear, I am nothing, you are nothing, but Beethoven, he is everything. Theologically, that is where Paul was in the preaching of Christ. Christ was everything. He says, but we preach Christ crucified, he told the Corinthians, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Specifically, he preached the unsearchable riches of Christ. That was the content of his sermon. Literally, the riches that cannot be tracked and tallied. You can't write this down. You can't tally it up. You can't put this on a spreadsheet. The, the idea is difficult, again, to put into, into words, though the translators have attempted with words like inexplorable riches, untraceable, unfathomable, inexhaustible, illimitable, inscrutable, incalculable, and infinite. I think you get the idea. What are the unsearchable riches? They are saving riches. They are sanctifying riches. They are relational riches, practical riches, and eternal riches. Not only was Paul responsible for preaching Christ to the Gentiles, his next focus was to inform the world of the church. Let me introduce you to the church, he says to the world. In verse 9, he says, To make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery. That is our job, the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. Paul was to enlighten all humanity regarding the miracle of Jews and Gentiles becoming a new humanity, a third race. It is as we live out the mystery of the third race that we will win the world for Christ. It is to brothers and sisters that the world is drawn. Not drawn to a person, but to a family, to a body. We must realize that dynamic evangelism will take place as we preach and live out two things, Christ and his church. Paul calls us to the power of the two in concert with one another. You cannot have one without the other. The third and final purpose for Paul's op opening the mystery comes as a surprise to us, I think. If we think carefully about it, it should. To inform the angels. To inform the angels. 
He says, His, God's intent, was that now through the church the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to His eternal purpose which He accomplished in Christ Jesus. Here I think it will help us to imagine a cosmic theater in which a drama is taking place. It's the theater of of human history. The stage is the world. The actors are the church, the people of God. The writer and producer is God himself. He's directing the drama. And the audience, who's watching? Cosmic beings, the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, angels. The history of the Christian church is the graduate school for angels, John Stott says. He goes on to say, it is through the old creation, the universe, that God reveals his glory to humans. It is through the new creation, the church, that he reveals his wisdom to angels. Powerful. And so the inescapable conclusion is that the angels watch us because we, you and me in this room today, we are a part of the mystery of what God has done in Jesus Christ. This is not the only scripture which teaches this. First Peter 1, 10 through 12 describes how the prophets searched intently to understand the prophecies regarding Christ, which have now been revealed in the gospel. Adding at the end of verse 12, even angels long to look into these things. Literally, the language is they stoop down to look. They're getting close to watch, to see what God's going to do through his church. How does this all come together? This picture's angels bent over and intently observing the teachings and actions of God's people. What are they going to do next? Then there is that enigmatic line in 1 Corinthians 11.10. I don't intend to tease all this out. Uh, which says that because of the angels, the woman ought to have a sign of authority on her head. And we get all kinds of controversial discussions around that. The bottom line is that we have a far bigger and more observant viewing audience than many of us realize. All heaven is watching. How are we doing? Are they enjoying the show? And so the inference of our text and that in First Peter is that God has not revealed his complete plan for history and the reconciliation of the universe to the angels. So they observe us to learn about it. Angels, we know, are messengers of God. They're heralds. They also watch over his people. We know, too, that they gather in innumerable hosts to sing hymns to God and that they delight in beholding the Father's face. Matthew 18.10 We know that they were present when each new star was freshly minted and the planets were set to their gliding courses. Job 38.7 The morning stars, the angels sang together on that day. They have seen the greatness and wisdom of creation. They have navigated the immense distances of space. They have watched God's people from the beginning. Aaron and Moses, the blood-drenched offerings and the clouds of smoke in the tabernacle and the temple and on and on. They have seen the advent of Christ. They witnessed the incarnation, death, and resurrection of their blessed Lord. Yet, there still remains for them much to learn. How will it all come together? They wonder. And as they watch the church, 
God reveals His manifold wisdom, literally His many-colored wisdom, a rare poetical adjective here that's used in the Septuagint, that is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, to describe, describe Joseph's coat of many colors. So this manifold wisdom is the coat of many colors, the multifaceted, multifaced wisdom of God. The many-colored fellowship of the church, the variegated third race of Jews and Gentiles, multicultural and multi-ethnic and multiracial, shows the many-shaded wisdom of God. Through studying the church, the angelic host observes the reconciling work of Christ in the world, which is the model for the reconciling of the universe when everything in heaven and on earth will be brought together in him. All of this demands a view of the church so high and so staggering that it challenges the limits of human belief. The church, a product of God's reconciling work, will in fact be an agent in the ultimate cosmic reconciliation. We are not the spectators. We are the show. This is the wisdom of God on exquisite display. This mystery keeps the angels watching. How marvelous is this gospel we proclaim. Our text calls us to recognize and revere the immense centrality of the church in the world. John Stott has suggested that this includes three grand facts, and I'm going to wrap up with this. First, the church is central to history. The open secret is that the church, the new humanity, a multiracial, multinational third race, will rule in the universe along with Christ and the angels. And that amidst the swirling tides of all of our confusion, uh, cultural Marxism, revived militant Islam, thoughtless pluralism, and materialism, on and on, only the church will survive history. Second, Stott says, the church is central to the gospel. Ephesians teaches that the complete gospel involves both the preaching of Christ and the mystery of the church, both of them. Christ died and rose from the dead not only to save us, but to create a new humanity. That means that the local manifestation of the church, the church we attend, this church, is vitally important. It is the third race watched by the world and by angels. That's you right here. So when, when it preaches Christ, when we preach Christ, and lives as the church, when we live as the church, Souls are ineluctably drawn to Christ the head. Not drawn to us, but to our head. And third, Stott says the church is central to Christian living. The text ends with Paul alluding to his suffering. He says, I ask you therefore not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which is your glory. Paul was willing to pay any price to see the church go forward. And so as an apostle, he saw his sufferings as the church's glory. And that helps us put it into perspective. So the bottom line is this. The church is not an option for believers, nor is supporting it an option. Paul's gospel was Christ through the church. The kingdom of God advances through the ministry of the church. We, the church, the ecclesia, the called out ones, are mediators of this mystery to the world. That is our call, and nothing less. This is our duty and our delight.
In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. So our text from Ephesians 3 today challenges us to broaden and deepen our understanding of the church. It is through the church, Paul claims, that the wisdom of God in its rich variety might now be made known to the nations. It is the whole of the church throughout time and place with Jesus Christ as the cornerstone that makes it known. It is the whole of the church knit together as one body, the body of Christ. It is the whole of the church in word and sacrament, in scripture and tradition, in ancient inspired texts and voices from these pews that makes known the wisdom of God, the mystery of Christ, the one for all, known to all. No one part of the body has this commission alone. No one branch, no one denomination, no one century or millennium has it all figured out. Indeed, just about every part of the body has allowed itself to be led wildly astray at one time or another, which is why we need the balance of the whole. This wisdom of God in its rich variety is to be made known not only to the Gentiles of the world and time, but also to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Those beings and forces that are beyond the beyond and those that are everywhere in between. Just as God is boundless, so is his call to God's people. The halls of government, the malls of shopping, the marriage bed, the family table, the studio office, the classroom, and the boardroom. All of these are places and contexts for the wisdom of God revealed in Jesus to be made manifest, to be made known. God's people are not meagerly equipped for this work. The whole of history and creation is behind it. Paul's zeal, uh, it has funding, in other words. Uh, Paul's zeal for the church's work of mediating the mystery of Christ to the world is invigorating. Does this stir you? Are you moved? Do we realize the magnificent responsibility that this entails? Excuse me. Christian, if you are numb to this, and you feel no conviction in your soul, wake up today. Hear this call. Arise, the light has come, Isaiah says. The mystery is revealed and it involves you. Reckon with this and what it means for your life this very day and this coming week. The church, you and me, knit together as the body of Christ, are stewards of the mystery of God's salvation for the world. What a glorious calling we have. So return to your homes and your schools and your workplaces with this great vocation as your commission. Paul reminds of us in verse 12 that through faith in Christ, the people of the church are able to go forth with boldness and confidence. And may we do so today as we sing this hymn in our hearts. I love thy kingdom, Lord, the house of thine abode. The church, our blessed Redeemer saved, with his own precious blood. For her my tears shall fall, for her my prayers ascend, to her my cares and toils be given, till toils and cares shall end. Amen.
God of every nation, by the light of a wondrous star, you led wandering Magi to the humble infant Jesus, revealing to them your salvation for the world. Through him you have constituted a new and holy people fit for heaven. With the Apostle Paul, may we not forget, but exult in the great privilege we have as his body of mediating the mystery of Christ to the world. In the miraculous and in the mundane, in union with all who have glimpsed the light of your grace, lead us to Christ that we may offer our worship and serve him with sincerity of heart this week. For he lives with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Now receive this benediction from Isaiah 54. My kindness shall not depart from you, nor shall my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord, who has mercy on you. Amen. Amen.